Oh, everybody, we are back. We are back for the big season three. So excited. So excited. It is The Sopranos Podcast, season three, episode one, The Noble and Ancient House of Bing. (laughs) Let me hear you say it. That quote is given by Tony Soprano in a great scene with a great new character, Patsy Parisi. In this season three, episode one of The Sopranos, Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood, written by David Chase and directed by Alan Coulter. Gentlemen, uh, (laughs) this is an interesting premiere. In my opinion, we're going to respect our no spoilers policy going forward, but this is definitely the most unique of the three season premieres we've gotten so far. We're kind of seeing The Sopranos universe through the eyes of the FBI agents. and. Not only is it funny and there's interesting stuff happening, but it's also a little sad to see just how inept these guys actually are. They're yeah. wrong about everything from their assumptions on what's going on in the mob world to Tony's water heater down to every minute detail. They just can't seem to to get it right. They're bungling themselves along. But let's go around the table here and just kind of give our first reactions to Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood. So it seems like this episode seeks to sort of subvert the tropes of police procedurals or FBI procedurals, and it does that in a way that is sort of really funny and also sort of endearing. I've mentioned many times on the show before that I don't find the Fed characters particularly likable, but in their ineptitude at trying to perform just the basic functions of their job and just, you know, fucking it up royally, uh, they actually are a little bit more likable even skip to some extent, but certainly Agent Harris and and Grasso even has a moment in this episode. There there are moments where I'm just like, okay, these are these are people too. Super incompetent, very funny people. And there's also kind of a grossness to this episode because it it definitely plays with, you know, voyeurism. They're definitely doing some things and looking at some things in a way that they probably shouldn't. Um, their surveillance activities are really supposed to be limited to the basement, but in performing the function of basically invading Tony's house and installing a bug. I mean, they're looking around at his other stuff. They're looking at the tools he owns. They're looking at Adriana that, you know, it's uh, it becomes kind of this kind of like gross perverseness to it. It also, I think there's a little bit of a flavor of almost like the feds are fans of the family, the Sopranos, but also maybe of the show, the Sopranos. And again, hard, no spoiler policy, but I think, I think that's an ongoing theme. I think actually we've seen some of that already in season one and two. I agree. I think there's definitely that voyeuristic aspect and they pepper that in well with that Peter Gunn theme blended with the I'll Be Watching You by Sting, which is a song about obsession and stalking blended with the police procedural kind of, all right, we're going to go get the bad guys theme. That's very well done. And yeah, Paul, your thoughts on Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood? I agree. I looked at it in much the same way. I was a little nervous about watching this episode because it is very different. And I was wondering, is this going to really not really lend itself to a deep dive? Right. Um, there's no stories in this episode. There's one. They're planning the book. Everything else is glimpses of uh, life um, and pieces of story. Uh, that's deliberately done. The FBI agents being inept and tedious is also deliberately done. I think they're sending up some of these old procedurals that mm-hmm. David Chase would have been watching 
in the 1960s when there were three channels and Peter Gunn was a cool private eye. I'm sure that's how the FBI agents would like to see themselves. They're not that, are they? No, um, no. They think Richie April was definitely whacked by the cartel. They're confident <laughs> in this. So actually, I think that Jordan's right. There is something charming. There's also something I think deliberately infuriating about these new characters that we're watching. Again, I, the word tedious to me comes up a few times. Everything from the, the fact that they're not creative, all their nicknames for the family are stupid. They're based on this Bing imagery. They call the house the sausage factory. <laughs> I just I, I, I wanted to throttle all of these people in part because as Jordan astutely mentioned, it's there's a bit of a gross feeling, but again, more the tedium of it all uh, kind of bothered me. But again, tedium and boredom is something that comes up in The Sopranos. And this is also self-consciously a season opener. And traditionally season openers do something or some things that immediately bring you back into the world of the characters and let you know where they are, what has transpired, what's changed in their lives and what's developed. Last season, all of that was done in the space of about two minutes with the Francis, uh, with the Frank Sinatra, uh, it was a very good year track. Here it's stretched out over the course of the whole episode, getting these glimpses that don't necessarily have any meaning of these characters that people at the time had been dying to see for three months. And then Meadow spends half the episode napping in her dormant <laughs> It's so anticlimactic, and yet I found myself having fun watching yeah. it. There are moments that are very funny. I'm sure we're going to talk about those. And I, I had a really good time. I have some notes, but a lot of it was kind of a delight, even as there are these odd moments that made me feel kind of uncomfortable. And by the end, I felt like it was almost absurd. At the end of this episode, guys, when Stasi um, comes out from behind the water heater and said, I had contract in my country, I was like, did Ionesco write this episode? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's very funny. Yeah, this was an entertaining hour. I'm not going to say it's not. I have a, I don't want to say an issue with it. I, I, It's not that it's a, not a good episode. It is. It's entertaining. I think if you're marathoning the show or binge watching it, this is a perfectly acceptable and entertaining installment. Now, a little bit of trivia for those who weren't watching this live and either watched the show after or, you know, years after it aired. They premiered this episode and episode two, Proshai Levushka, in the same night. And I think there might be a reason for that, because honestly, as much as I enjoy this episode and as much as it worked on some level, a good premiere will touch you down on all the characters and kind of show you where everyone's at much in the same way, like you said, the, it was a very good year. So we know three months have passed. We basically skipped the summer, right? Meadow graduated at the end of season two. She's kind of starting out the semester. It's first or second week of college. And so we're catching up. But at the same time, I feel like as much as I enjoyed it, if this were all I got on premiere night, I think I would have been a little bit dissatisfied. Sure. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I think it was a smart move for them to air this and pro Shailavushka in the same night. Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's okay to say this. We can agree that the episode is still good, fun, funny, well-written, charming, but also is, to use Paul's very good word, it's tedious. It's a little trite. Mm. Uh, and that's that's okay. I, you know, they were kind of going for that. I, yeah. I agree. I, I think 
as a Sopranos viewer, I would have been disappointed had this just aired alone. They do serve up a meal by also airing that second episode, but you know, we'll, we'll get to that one in time. Yeah. So we'll talk about this one. I just kind of want to mention where all the characters are, what we know at the start, but yeah, I agree. And the perspective of the FBI agents, it's, it's clear to me (laughs) if it wasn't already that as much as David Chase may not respect the behavior and activities of the gangster. It's possible he respects the Federal Bureau of Investigation even less. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's some smart stuff going on here. Uh, let's talk about where all our characters are. First of all, we're establishing a, if it wasn't clear by the end, of, by the beginning of season two, it's definitely clear now. We're establishing an opening to the season where Tony trudges down from the house in his bathrobe and gets the paper. In season one, it's the first thing we see outside of Melfi's office when Tony starts talking about his day. Season two, he goes down to get the paper. Pussy's there. Season three, Tony trudges out and gets the paper. This is a recurring thing now. It's a cool way to start. Tony looks, garbage contracts heating up. So there's something going on in the garbage business. We're not exactly clear on what that entails, but their violence is feared. Tony grimaces, doesn't like seeing mob business in the newspaper. And... We get the scene with the feds and they're like I mentioned in our intro, they're just incorrect about every assumption. Uh, <laughs> Richie Cartel had him whacked. Livia would probably testify against Tony, even if they weren't promising immunity. <laughs> yeah, she would do. She would do a lot more than that, as we know. Yeah, yeah. And then we kind of launch out. They're looking to wiretap Tony's basement. They kind of have a, an assessment for. He talks business sometimes by the pool, but he fears parabolics. So mostly he'll take guys down to the basement. Parabolics, lip readers. There's a lot of things that the feds can do to ascertain what's being discussed in an outdoor environment. So Tony, and we know Tony takes business down to the basement very often. So Chris, do we, do we think that Tony's cigar smoking was perhaps started or is perhaps an ongoing thing because he feel fears lip reading in some way. He does seem to always have the cigar when he's out by the pool. I have noticed this. Hmm. I suppose that could be, he's a very smart guy. He's calculated enough to think of something like that and to be paranoid. What I love is they mention that they've had Tony's phones bugged for years, but the guy says less than Arpo marks. So he's very, (laughs) yeah, he's very astute and aware of what he's doing. And we're led to believe from the FBI point of view that it's hard to pin something on this guy. So we know that Tony's competent from what we've seen through him. And now we have that confirmed from his adversaries that he's hard to get a read on. So I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's part of the cultural thing. You're a big Italian guy from New Jersey. You're going to chomp a cigar out by the pool, but also, yeah, it's a, could be a useful tool. We saw in casino, right? Joe Pesci's like always got the toothpick. Yeah. Kind of covering his mouth when the Fed, he, they know the feds are watching him. So it's not above these guys to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordan makes an interesting point. I, ha- I had not thought of that. But what's interesting in this episode, I think that that is quite clever, is that the FBI guys are wrong about a lot. But I think it's very important that all the characters are missing some ostensibly very important things. Like you notice in the very first scene, the, the FBI, even if they're just a little off, they're off. Uh, Bompensero is compost. Well, he's dead, but he's not compost. That's not how he was disposed of. Yeah. Yeah. Tony is presumably so careful and smart that his attitude towards seeing 
clearly fed guys in his neighborhood is cavalier. It's quite funny, actually. He flips them off. What's the bit at the beginning that's so great? He's he, hey, he Furio's taking him to the store. Station. I'm just going to get some stationery. I'll be right back. You don't have to follow me like last time. <laughs> great. You see. Yeah. Right, and you see the FBI guy sort of humiliated by that, but of course he has no idea what kind of tricks they're up to. And I think that's very important. Everybody in this episode, to some degree, is spying. That's why they brought Patsy over from Junior's crew. And everybody has huge blind spots, which in some way, even though we've already established this is not a traditional Sopranos episode, it has traditional Soprano themes. Everybody's missing something. Yeah. The feds have enormous resources and that's ultimately where their strength is because, and I believe this personally, not because I think stupid people go into the FBI. It's not that at all. I think there's very smart people in the FBI, whatever. I'm not criticizing the FBI, but I believe that gangsters by very nature have to be more savvy than the lawmen. The lawmen just have more resources. The, The gangster has to constantly be evolving their methods to adapt to what law enforcement is doing. And ultimately their freedom is at stake. Their lives are at stake for the cops. You know, yeah. Promotion might be at stake, you know, it's, and then it's still at the end of the day, they go home. So it's not, you know, well, yeah, there's this idea of sort of job versus lifestyle, right? The gangster is never not a gangster. He doesn't ever take that costume off when the fbi agent goes home he's just a normal guy and then he mm-hmm. goes to work the next day the gangster is yeah. always the gangster so i mean yeah I, I agree you have to be more savvy because that's that's your whole life and it's it's always on the line fbi they can leave the fbi whenever they want they that that job ends when they go home yep so let's talk about where we find everybody right now tony is carrying on business as usual he's the boss his enemies are smoked uh, and carmella is meeting Adriana at tennis lessons. AJ's into skateboarding. Meadow is starting her freshman year at Columbia University, confirmed. She got into a lot of schools and she's going to Columbia right across right across the river there in Manhattan. Furio is driving Tony. He's kind of his muscle, his driver. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where everybody kind of starts out. I love this. I don't know why it's, it's terrible. I can't help but laugh when they, uh, the guy, um, forgetting the agent's name at the moment, but he's like, Stasiu, I'll run that by anti-terrorism just for, <laughs> just, just for laughs. <laughs> Fuck these guys, dude. Yeah. Fuck them and their bullshit. I got so mad at that. Yeah. Like irrationally angry that they were going to like run through, run this like sad Polish cab driver who reminisces on his life and just like sort of blandly resents America. They're going to run him through anti-terrorism. God. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, it is. I, I do feel for him too. I mean, he, there are, there are people like this who are, were like engineers in their country, but they don't meet the standards of the U S and have to redo school or they have to get their citizenship and all that stuff. That's a whole process. It's uh, but you know, they're, they're just farting around. They're bored. They're, it, this is a tedious job. So of course, yeah, let me just uh, find an excuse to talk to my buddies in anti-terrorism. Yeah. Tony singing Steely Dan. I want to talk about this. This is, <laughs> this is a, just a personal level, a already a contender for top music moment for me, <laughs> only because Tony is just so it's like it's such a natural moment. I almost almost want to believe that they just filmed Gandolfini driving around and that happened naturally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 
as a, this was 2001, the season aired early 2001. So I was maybe 14, 15 years old for a 14 or 15 year old kid to have Steely Dan's dirty work on his iPad or his iPod <laughs> <laughs> or downloading it from Napster or whatever the hell I was doing at the time. Right. So congrats to Sopranos for getting a 14 year old boy into Steely Dan. Cause I was all over this song <laughs> because of this moment. It was just very entertaining. Uh, but it also added to the sense of the show that we're all kind of bearing witness to things that maybe we shouldn't see. You should, you don't expect people to see you singing in the loan in the car, you know, so it's that kind of thing that lets us in on that. We get this hilarious scene at Satrialis <laughs> after they introduce the Peter Gunn theme motif that's going to be running through the episode. And uh, we see the guys just kind of having a nice lunch. It's uh, Patsy Parisi's birthday. We met Patsy briefly in the season two finale. His brother, Philly, was killed in the season two premiere by Gigi. He was kind of the last holdout from Junior's crew at the end of that war. And so Patsy is his twin brother. I think the showrunners just really liked actor Dan Grimaldi, as do I. So they brought him back. And we get this hilarious scene, Paulie with a shoelaces speech. So thoughts on this scene. And we also get this seed planted right now of the Patsy Parisi thing that's going to be going on this episode where he misses his brother. He's given death glares at Gigi across the table. Christopher keeps bringing it up and Tony keeps clearing his throat. Chris is just not getting it. A lot of fun backroom gangster stuff happening here. Jordan. Uh, perhaps I'm uh, not giving the episode its due credit, but to me, and by the way, I, I love this germ speech from Paulie about tying your shoelaces and they have, you know, urine on them and whatever. It's a, it's a hilarious speech, mm -hmm. but it's also, again, enormously tedious. There is nothing important about what is being said. It's just run of the mill, kind of gross, funny conversation. Now, the thing with Patsy is is more substantial, but it's also something substantial from a character that we may like, but we don't, you know, sort of really care about. And it's just it's sort of amusing to me that we derive a lot of drama from this completely ancillary character in this episode. It seems like the show doesn't really focus on anything that has great significance in this episode. But I think that's all part of sort of the fun. It is part of the fun of it. And it's also alluding to what the end shot reveals we've all seen the episode so this isn't a spoiler to talk about this quickly here but the last two minutes of the episode is them listening to tony and carmela talk about laundry and fiber in your diet and it's all just very boring tedious everyday conversation uh, honestly all this effort that the feds put into this wiretap we're led to believe that this kind of shit is all they're going to get mm -hmm. so in a way reminding us of the tedium and and all that is like you know, the feds are putting all this time and effort and money and what's going on. Patsy's getting drunk and, and ranting about his boss, you know, <laughs> Paul. Uh, yes, I felt the same way, sort of a back and forth between, well, yeah, the, the it's kind of the tedium and, and the there's no plan here. Like Tony just went to Satrial's, saw that the guys made lunch and said, oh, yeah, set a plate. I mean, Silvio and Polly made meatballs or whatever. This sounds wonderful. Yeah. And Paulie's speech, of course, is so funny. The only connection I made to, I guess, the big plot in the episode is, I guess, a thematic one. No matter how clean you get, something's still going to get you. And mm. no matter how cautious Tony is, perhaps the feds will find a way in with uh, with the twin lamp. And here we are with the twin storyline of uh, Philly and Patsy. Very uh, good. Very good. Mm. Wonderful actor Dan Grimaldi, as, as you guys said, 
uh, yeah, this seems really out there. It's uh, it's funny in weird ways. It is honestly sad. I know some twins. I do think there is like a twin thing. And there's a great moment. It's very brief, but you see the camera cuts to a wide shot when Chris, who cannot shut the fuck up, and that's so funny in this scene, <laughs> yeah. he's prodding these questions and mentions this phenomenon of twins dying uh, nearby in terms of time. And I think Patsy says that would have been just fine with me. And the whole table goes oh, and like, yeah. oh, what do you say? And Tony quietly vocalizes the same thing, but he does not move and does not gesture like the rest of the guys. His eyes are right on Patsy. He's watching. That's what this episode is about, watching and listening. So it is this weird juxtaposition of what we're focusing on here because then the last shot of the scene is not Tony considering it. It's Patsy staring at Gigi, his mm. brother's killer across the table, seemingly with this secret knowledge. And that will thread out through the rest of the episode. So something is back and forth for me in scenes like this between maybe getting attracted to some aspect of what they're talking about and also maybe not entirely not knowing quite what to focus on. Wow. That's that's well said, Paul. And I do th- agree that there is something to twin, I don't know, <laughs> twin telepathy, as Tony calls it later. But uh, I do think there is something to that. There's a great documentary I'd recommend for everybody out there uh, called a Three, Three Identical Strangers. And it's about triplets that were separated at birth and then monitored by scientists uh, un- unbeknownst to them for their entire life, uh, growing up in separate families. And then they reconnected in, in college. But growing up, like there, there were times where when they after they were separated, they would like scream in their cribs, bang their heads against the wall. And it really like deeply affected them. And they grew up with a lot of problems. One was like in a wealthy home. One was in a middle class home. One was more poor. And they grew up with like kind of the same problems despite that because they were separated. So there's something to that. And uh, that's that's a fascinating uh, subject. But it's not unbelievable to that Patsy would have a gut feeling about Gigi and Tony based on the murder. And so it's interesting there. But let's move on here. We get these tennis scenes. This tennis plot line is, is again, tedious and silly, but funny. Absurd. It's absurd. <laughs> Karma's into this tennis coach and he has to leave. And Adriana's just getting started. So they bring in this other woman who I think we're led to believe is a lesbian and really into aid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not led to believe. We're basically told. I mean, yeah. So this this woman, Bridget, Bridget, I don't know. I wasn't clear either. I couldn't. I write down like Bridget. Yeah, she's a very cute uh, red haired tennis coach who uh, overtly is just really hot for Adriana. And there's sort of nothing more to that. The FBI agents that are observing this scene because they're watching Carmela, a.k.a. Mrs. Bing, uh, just like really like looking at Adriana, which was another moment for me. I was just like these FBI agents are just fans of the show. They like looking at her in the same way that we do. (laughs) Yeah. How green is Paul's fucking Valley? Yeah. (laughs) But funny stuff. These guys definitely think they got the good detail. So good for them. They did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I guess objectively they did. Sure. Well, this is as good a time as any to mention that the stories such as they are, are not particularly important at least in terms of this framework. We just went over some things that I think are important in terms of Patsy and Tony, which I think is probably the closest that this episode comes to actual story, beginning, middle, and end, and 
character. But th- this is what this is where Carmela is during this window of time that the mm-hmm. FBI has. That's the only reason that we're watching it. It's the only reason Adriana's in this episode, presumably. Yeah. What else is important? What's important about like Liliana and Stasiu's relationship? Liliana and Stasiu and their picnics are not important. We're not we're not following these characters. The 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 show and these other people and these other institutions don't care about them. The episode makes that abundantly clear. That's where Liliana is in this window of time. As the FBI agent said at the beginning of the episode, Liliana going to this class and then having this picnic is what creates this window of opportunity for them. That's why we're watching this, and that's why it gives it this odd feeling that Jordan's been talking about of tedium as well as uh, a bit of voyeurism. Yep. Well, I'll tell you why those, I'll tell you, I'll give you the big reason why those scenes are important, Paul, with Stasiu and, and Liliana. And it's one name, Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. He's just hungry, impatient, wants to eat. So every answer, <laughs> Martin Luther King. That's great. Great deflection. Stasiu. <laughs> Who wrote the Star Spangled Banner? Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King. King. <laughs> I want to eat. <laughs> so Francis, funny. Uh, Francis Scott Key's mother came in for some horrible abuse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking horrible mother. I was dying. <laughs> oh, and then there's another, the, the second picnic scene with them. Oh, God. When uh, they, 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 I loved a little bit they wrote there. Stop men at work. And how am I supposed to know that doesn't mean stop all men who are working? <laughs> He's right. English is a stupid, awful language. I feel bad for anybody who has to learn it. We're just all used to it. Sure. But that, any- that, that phrase in particular, by the way, is specific to his situation, right? Who's this? He's this brilliant guy who's an engineer. He had a staff of 20. And yeah. here in America, the best he can do is drive a cab because he's like Polish and doesn't speak English that well. I mean, that's that's it's it, it was a good phrase there. It was, it was yeah. nicely done. Yeah, I thought that was a very nice bit of writing by David Chase. I love David Chase as a writer. His dialogue is just very funny, darkly funny. And I, also, I think David Chase also just finds this has been through the whole show, but it was nice to observe in this episode. He finds very uniquely and specifically humane things about characters that otherwise would be totally, you know, just these totally flat background characters. But now having had an episode like this, and this is, I think, where this episode really shines is. These characters that you might never have seen this way before, you get something out of them, right? Yeah. You're, you're watching differently because you're playing the role of the FBI. Now you're kind of watching everybody closely. Uh, yeah. As Paul said before, everybody's watching everybody. So, yeah. so are we. What's this Stasio guy up to? And for a moment, you actually care about this totally ancillary character and his drama and the tedium of his life and being frustrated about being underemployed in America as an immigrant. This is something The Sopranos does well. It does treat its smaller characters well. Uh, again, can't iterate this enough. We won't spoil anything, but there are episodes in upcoming seasons that center around characters that have been fringe at best, and then all of a sudden they're thrust into a spotlight and they rise to the occasion because the writers know the characters so well and the actors they cast are so good. But yeah, that's going to continue, and I, I, I love it here. I think uh, they do a nice job <laughs> making us at least care in these moments about these people. Mm-hmm. We meet uh, AJ's friends, bunch of douchebags. He's wearing a shirt with a marijuana leaf on it. He's he's skateboarding. I think his friends are douchebags. Who asks for a sip from somebody's Snapple before they've even opened it? Like yeah. you let them get the first sip. Like even when I share desserts with my wife, if she orders a dessert, it's like, 
take the first bite. Then I come in with my fork. You know, this, I, this is a, like a Larry David esque nitpick here, <laughs> but you know, you don't, you don't ask for some, a hit of somebody's thing before they've had the first sip or bite. So no. his friends, his friends are douchebags as far as uh, I'm concerned. Chris, in fairness though, the young man was very careful not to backwash. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. What a, what a gentleman, but the point of the scene, as far as I'm concerned is they all kind of mock the kid who just joined the football team or at least trying out for the football team. He has his Jersey and uh, AJ seems impressed by it. So we're going to come back to that. He does very notably impressed by that. Mm -hmm. Yep. We see Meadow at college roommate, Caitlin drunk off her face. Uh, (laughs) We're going to find out more about this character, but uh, just kind of getting a little time capsule here. There's a nice NSYNC poster above Meadow's bed. I noticed that it's like placing us firmly in the year 2001. And uh, this is actually, I I also want to give the Sopranos credit for this because this is a thing on TV. You you think back to a lot of sitcoms or TV shows that are centered in a dorm room Mm -hmm. and anyone who's been to an actual college, especially one in the New York city metropolitan area, you go into a dorm room and it's like, you know, a closet in there. Dorm rooms are tight. There's never enough room. You can't ever fully move in. But these TV dorm rooms are like palaces. You know, they have so much space. It's like, what fucking dorm room would this be uh, where they would have this much room? But not the case here. This is two tight beds. Everything feels kind of cluttered and cramped. So just props to the people who designed this, because I'm sure it was shot in a studio. Good job. I'm happy I wasn't given a bullshit dorm on a TV show. But again, these are the kinds of things I'm paying attention to in this episode. So <laughs> it's, it's funny to note on television, too. This is not just The Sopranos, but um, I feel like teenage characters are always all that more buffoonish because they are going to be time capsule characters because teenagers in real life are always they're very much of their time. Mm. Um, you know, so of course we're going to see the InSync poster. We're going to see, you know, music, uh, you know, the, the marijuana leaf shirt, the skateboarding obsession, the wallet chains, the Janko jeans, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. It, it looks so foolish to us now, but in the moment that is totally correct. And I'm, I'm really happy that they were not turned into like, I don't know, timeless teenagers or something like that. They are of the moment. It's totally great. Yes. Yes. I also really like all the different iteration of absolute vodka on her wall. That's a good <laughs> yeah. sign. Yeah. <laughs> we all knew I, that girl. Yeah. <laughs> Again, just focusing for a second on where the FBI is finding these characters during in this window where they've really, this is a precautionary measure that it's actually good that they took it because they would have got caught if they hadn't, that people are watching the members of the family who are outside of the house during this window. And even Meadow who's yes, over the bridge in the city, but still, not too far. 40 minutes, probably. Yeah. Um, get back to Caldwell. But I love that during this window of time, it seems as though Meadow, I don't know, maybe she did she have like an early class on that day and then she has a later class and she went back and caught a nap. That's what I would have done, boys, at Hofstra oh, yeah. back in my day. If I oh, had yeah. like an 8 a.m. class and then I was free from like 11 to 4, boom, nap time. So again, just catching them in this time frame, but Meadow isn't necessarily doing anything interesting except not being able to sleep very well for a moment because her roommate is annoying and doesn't hasn't figured out the balance of this life yet, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I lucked out. I had a great freshman year roommate. You get somebody, you don't know who they are. I, I lucked out there. Uh, but I wrote like, she's sleeping, you asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like no, no attempt at all to 
quiet down. But anyway, we get more of her later and she's a little neurotic, definitely culture shocked by the city. Next, we get the picnic scene and then we see the feds watching the video from the first infiltration. They're making funny comments. I was laughing along with it. The pasta, that, that's just for Anthony Jr. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I, I hate it. I, tr- I hated that, truly, to be honest. Well, it, it sucks because I'm laughing at the actual jokes they're making. Oh, no, no. no. I, I agree. It was funny. But also, I'm just like, yeah, s- similar to how Paul felt earlier. Just fuck you. Fuck yeah. you for doing this to this family. Shut the fuck up and do your job. Don't comment on the kid's weight and the pasta. and the. Shut the fuck up. Just do yeah. your job. And, is, and, that, and, is that what you're fucking there for, you assholes, on I my know. On my tax dollar, fuck you. And the particular glee they take, knowing that Tony's basement's going to flood and ruin his fucking wedding pictures and, you know. Oh, but the karma, because it ruins their fucking plan, too. Yeah, that's all. Yes, yes, very good. They got a nice dose of uh, of karma there. Uh, but they they were very smug about that. You know, maybe we can inform Tony's lawyer during the discovery phase of his trial that he needs a plumber. Fuck. <laughs> Yes, this is what I mean by the tedium. Again, like in our daily lives and as people in society, we don't want to root for pettiness or vindictiveness. But often when our gangster characters do it, it's fun. It's funny. It might even be big and monstrous. Like the pettinesses of the FBI agents is like, huh, his water heater is going to blow and we're not going to tell him. Again, I'm like, oh, you know, fuck you guys. This is sort of gross. And yeah, I guess I felt similarly to Jordan just watching the scene i was like man these guys are the worst (laughs) is this the same scene where grasso notices that he has the same power tool as tony or something like that decker i have that yeah yeah that was another (laughs) moment i was just like shut the fuck up dude (laughs) (laughs) who gives a fuck yeah 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 it's funny it's funny gotta laugh at how much shit heals and we should in theory in any rational universe we should be rooting for the for the law to take these guys down but because they do it in such a smug invasive perverse way it feels wrong and we're like fuck you guys (laughs) i mean to be honest if we could look at the show from the fed side for a second they did kind of barely give us a likable fed character it really is just agent harris and then even then it's just barely Mm. the other the other feds are basically unbearable yeah uh, either because they're tedious or because they're boring or because, frankly, they're mean or stupid or oafish. Yeah. Right? There's nothing particularly charming about them. The charm comes from the structure of this episode. It doesn't come from any individual Fed character. Yeah. Well said. And, and even Harris has that stupid fishing cap. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and Harris's uh, reaction when Tony makes him towards the end of the episode, like, oh, I just got made. Like, yeah, of course you did, you idiot. You park in the same spot every morning. <laughs> I think he doesn't notice, like, the most observant fucking man ever didn't notice, like, oh, yeah, there's the Fed car parked right there. Fuck you. <laughs> and also, he knows you. Yeah, yeah. It's so fucking funny. Oof. Yeah, this, the, everything, every little touch of incompetence, the fucking having to radio in while he's got a mouthful of sandwich, just all of it. It all adds up to a, a, a hell of a picture for, the, for, for our FBI characters. Um, we get the scene at the Bing. Gigi's doing some kind of new stock scam. Tony says, log off. That cookie shit makes me nervous. This was right at the time when cops were using the internet to bust right. people too. Actually, I thought, uh, I wrote in my notes, I said, that's kind of a funny thing because that's actually very prescient, uh, really, mm-hmm. like, because that that did come down shortly thereafter where that was all the era of the spyware and, like, keystroke recording and all that stuff. Tony is 
fucking smart, man. He really is. That cookie shit should make you nervous. In yeah. fact, in 2021, every time you use a web page, they ask you to accept the cookies because of that kind of shit. Yep. Yeah. So again, we're getting the picture that Tony is a very savvy gangster. He's he's incredibly smart. There's a reason they can't fucking pin anything on him. So yeah, I, I just I liked that line and I liked that moment. Well said, Jordan. We get this story about Patsy's into the booze very heavy. I do have to mention this because I love it every time The Sopranos does it, but we get a little bit of Shakespeare out of Patsy. Gigi Hamlet, gives a line yeah, of, yeah, Hamlet. Hamlet yeah. Uh, um, that's a man may, that a man may smile and smile and be a villain is a line from Hamlet. And that's, uh, I, if you're not familiar with that quote, Patsy's line may sound a little melodramatic, but you know, it is a, it is a Shakespeare quote and Patsy is uh, this, this thing with Patsy's heating up. And as Paulie mentions, you know, we always have the option, but again, this, this has that sense of tediousness to it because it's, it's something that should be kind of beneath Tony at this point. And also Syl can't even take his eyes off the golf game to address it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't let us interfere with your golf game, Paul. <laughs> then we get a little bit more of this tennis thing. The teacher is being really nasty to Carmela, but really loving and flirty with eight. It's silly. It's funny. <laughs> and then boom, she gets the call. Something's going on back at the house. The music picks up. Everybody's watching. AJ's AJ and Meadow are still at their respective schools, but Tony rushes out of the Bing, almost hits two innocent guys going to look at some tits on their lunch hour. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they all barrel home. And, uh, as you said, a little karmic justed, justice hoisted by their own petard. Uh, the FBI has to abandon their wire drop because the fucking water heater blew. And also, I, I also want to mention at this point now, we've we've gotten the scheme from them. We see the them delicately and intricately recreating this lamp at Quantico. Meanwhile, people with a brain are watching the show and thinking, a lamp? Isn't that a little impermanent? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's the best they can do, I suppose, with the circumstance, but it seems a little harebrained, like it's not going to pay off the way they think it will. For sure. And I think we're supposed to derive, I think, at least some humor with the immense, immense clinical care, the precision, surgical precision that goes into recreating this lamp that, frankly, no one in this family, including Tony, has any fucking idea what this lamp really looks like. I doubt they've ever given it a second glance. They probably could have just taken it right out of the box and thrown it back on the table and just sprinkled some dirt randomly on it. I realize they're professionals. They want to be really perfect, but there was a humorous level of precision to recreating this piece of shit lamp that Tony might as well just throw in the garbage as, as use it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I think it was a, I guess they, they did the best they could, but it was like, yeah, a lamp. Are you fucking kidding? Like anything could happen to a lamp. What if the bulb burns out and Tony looks at it just like this thing sucks and throws it out. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Well said. So the feds don't figure it out at first. The guys from Quantico have to leave. This is pre 9-11, I should mention, but they mentioned they have a mosque to bug the next day. So that's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, the Fed's Islamic terror and uh, that kind of Islamic extremism is something that they already had their eye on pre 9-11. And of course, that's going to escalate. This season was shot and aired before 9-11. I am mentioning this with a certain degree of import because I think the show, like much of our art, takes a different tone after 9-11 from season four on. And we can talk more about that as it goes. But 
just want to note that this is still though this is the last pre 9/11 season. I think there's something prescient in that as well. Not only in that there's a focus on mosques and uh, the efforts of anti-terrorism, but the question of uh, you know religious affiliation and house, houses of worship. This is presumably the same tech team that's working on this stuff in Tony's house. So are they going to be invading the privacy of worshipers and again, without a second thought? Um, again, yeah. we already have a sense of what they're willing to do and what they even do for kicks. Let's just run this cab driver through anti-terror. So it kind of made me feel a little bit ill. Maybe again, that's more with the benefit of hindsight, but yeah, anyway, it struck me for sure. Sure. Then we get this hilarious sequence that's also very tense if you're watching it for the first time where Patsy, uh, the FBI agents first go to the Cusamanos to under this New Jersey gas and electric disguise and get access to her yard. Jeannie almost spills the beans like a moron. And once again, <laughs> running theme in our show and on the show, the Cusamanos are the worst. They're just <laughs> the worst. The worst neighbors, the worst yeah. Italians, the worst people. Yeah, they can't even be basically loyal on a neighborly level i don't know it's just crazy to me but. just basically human she's yeah. had a 30 second conversation with two complete strangers and gives away that her neighbors are in the mafia like you classless bitch <laughs> shut the fuck up yeah yep but they get into her yard and they're keeping an eye and keeping up with the theme of piss that Paulie mentions earlier, creeping up on you without you knowing it. <laughs> from uh, uh, Patsy shows up, almost shoots Tony through the window. He's having breakfast. By the way, they're bugging the basement and he's having the most substantial business conversation of the episode in his kitchen at his kitchen table. And <laughs> Patsy's aiming the gun at him. Not in the but he does say at the end, "Let's take this downstairs." But Patsy takes a big piss right in the pool. <laughs> He's very drunk. Uh, I have to I have to laugh at just how upset he is. This is a man in utter cosmic misery. And the probably the most incompetent moment on the show is that the two feds draw their guns looking like deer in headlights. Yeah. Doing nothing in the moment where he is probably about to murder Tony. Uh, yeah, th this is like a gross level of incompetence, right? They, they do literally nothing. They actually just stand there. They don't even I don't I, I might be misremembering, but I don't think they even really aim their guns. They just have them out. They pull them out. It's a tough situation because in there they're thinking, do we shoot this guy? Once we shoot this guy in Tony's yard, the, the jig is up. The wiretap is up. He knows that we're out here. Uh, but, yeah, but I mean, what what law enforcement agency in good conscience can just stand by and watch someone be murdered? I, you know, yeah. uh, I don't know what FBI protocol is, but to me, that's uh, I think that compromises your mission if your target gets fucking murdered in front of you. <laughs> yeah, that's the key to the scene, I think, is actually that in, in many ways, the absurdity or even the tedium of all this is actually coming together. And yeah, I think you're right. I don't think they point, one guy definitely takes his gun out of the holster, but I think Jordan is right that they kind of just freeze. Maybe in this moment, yes, where there's gross incompetence, but again, yeah, there's all these funny questions like if they stop the assassination and shoot Pat, then their cover's blown. If they don't stop Patsy, then the target is murdered. Yeah. That's, catch that catch 22. So that's a funny moment for sure. 
the, the whole episode, and I think especially that moment, has kind of like this sort of Keystone Cops feeling to it where it's just like just hilarious incompetence. Ever. I laughed, honestly. I, like, obviously, I knew Tony wasn't going to get shot in that moment. So it was uh, the, the stakes were very low for me. <laughs> I was just like, this is just uh, this is absurd. It's absurdly funny. It's just stupid. And then he just takes a big, big piss in that pool, a big, high arcing, clear, drunk piss right into the pool. And I was like, this is just what the fuck? <laughs> We get the title in the next scene where Agent Harris and Cubitoso, they figure out what happened at the house. The water heater blew. Mr. Ruggiero, the plumber, and uh, Harris replies, oh, that's Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood. And that's our title. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> uh, suppose it's a little bit of a play on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, just kind of a funny word play there. But So I, I read this and I agree. And I think the title... I can appreciate the title of this episode a little bit more after having read this, but uh, if you think back to the old Mr. Rogers Neighborhood show, Mr. Rogers did have a miniature neighborhood uh, with the train and the buildings and all that stuff that he would kind of come in and play with, and I think it was featured on most of the episodes of that show. And I guess in the way that Mr. Rogers is observing the people in their tiny houses and on the train in the cars, he's he's kind of like the FBI. He's kind of like the, the watching eyes of God. So I guess Mr. Rogerio, through Mr. Rogers, through the comparison, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's he's always watching. <laughs> you know, I, it's silly, mm. but I, I think the parallel was apt. It's it's fun. I actually once I read that, I was like, okay, I get I get the title and I appreciate it now. Yes. Very good. Yeah, I thought of that as well. The only, I think, because I couldn't think of anything of import, it is kind of funny and silly. But I also thought that, as Jordan was saying, this notion of the, the miniature neighborhood and watching everybody, and the line that I always remembered, of course, from Mr. Rogers was, won't you be my neighbor? But being neighborly in this world seems to have a different connotation. Like you you want to know what's going on with people. Being neighborly to the Kuzumanos is not keeping your mouth shut ever about your neighbor's private business. So it gave it this kind of weird, um, mm-hmm. funny feeling to the whole episode. And uh, we, I, I titled this episode this week, uh, The Noble and Ancient House of Bing, which um, in the pre-show Paul correctly identified is a reference to the fifth Harry Potter book. Uh, and the title of a chapter, The Noble and Ancient House of Black. So in that Harry Potter book, The Order of the Phoenix, which is like, you know, Harry Potter and Friends and the the secret society that opposes Lord Voldemort. uh, I'm sorry, you know who. They have temporarily moved into the House of Sirius Black's family. And uh, in that particular chapter, um, they are like cleaning out the house of all like the dark magic and artifacts that's in there. But they kind of have no idea what they're doing. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, let's dispose of this cursed locket. Oh, never mind. That has huge significance. Why did we do that? Oh, let's um, let's cover up this painting. Oh, that painting is actually a gateway to... Like, they're just, they're just bumbling around in there. And then also the title suggests Noble and Ancient House of Bing. Uh, you, you know, the, the, it's such a mockery, such a mockery being made of the Sopranos family, but everything about them is actually quite serious. I mean, this is a family that you're trying to prosecute. You're trying to get Tony on murder and mayhem and racketeering and causing human misery and, you know, taking a toll of society. But you're referring to him as like Derbingle and and Bada Bing. And then his son is Baby Bing and Princess Bing and, and Mrs. Bing. You're having too much fun. You're having too much fun. And there's kind of the irony of just taking the job and and not being serious enough with it while also being way too serious with some of it. It's just completely unhinged. 
<laughs> I love that. It's a great title for our episode. I was thrilled when you sent me that, Jordan. It's great. So well, well, well explained. Sir. Oh, th- thank you. I <laughs> we get speaking of personal business, Paul, we get uh, way up in Adriana's personal business when they bend over to check out the shoes, the most Jersey underwear I've ever seen the leopard print <laughs> underwear. God bless Adriana. God bless Adriana. <laughs> Meow. Then uh, we get uh, the news from Hunter, Meadows' friend Hunter, as they walk back into the dorm that poor Eric Scatino hates Montclair State and does a lot of acid. Yeah. So they're still not letting us off the hook with that one. No, still... I, I was very sad to hear that, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, awful. And and then we get this scene with her roommate, Caitlin, see a different side of her. She's not just some drunk, freshman, kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. She's experiencing the shock of uh, New York City. She tells this story about this guy eating chicken on the subway, which while I would kind of, as a seasoned New York, New Jersey area guy at this point, would check off in the unconsiderate category, I certainly wouldn't tell the tale as if I had just watched someone be raped. She is like (laughs) grim and despondent over this. Yeah. So we're getting the sense that something Hunter, the way the Hunter kind of looks at Meadow, something is a little off here. There's, yeah, there's, so, there's... yeah. That that seed is planted that something's going to happen with this character. It was just a bit much. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Then we get this great scene with Tony and Patsy. It's uh, probably my favorite scene with the gangsters this episode. I like that. You know, uh, to me, it shows off Dan Grimaldi in a very short window of time. Uh, gets gets to show that the guy is a great actor. I, I I'm I'm going to be a little bit overt here that I'm a like Patsy Parisi, I know we've just met him, but he is kind of low, like one of low key, one of my favorite underlings in the Soprano family. I I, I adore Patsy oh, Parisi totally, yeah. for mm-hmm. reasons that have yet to be illuminated. But uh, I love that actor. I love Dan Grimaldi. And I, I, I enjoy this scene. Tony basically sits down. Tony's being a good boss here. Tony could very easily write this guy off very easily. Just have Paulie. Paulie says we always have the option. Just go kill him. And Tony does what Tony does. Yes, it's a little gross. Yes, Patsy should be upset his brother was murdered. But Tony sits down basically just like, hey, do you have a fucking problem? Yes or no? Put your grief behind you. Let me hear you say it. He makes Patsy iterate it. And you can see the grief on Patsy's face. Tony mentions, hey, you just bought a new house for your daughter. Wonderful thing, he says with a legitimate, genuine smile. And then when it's reasonably put to bed, Tony stands up and says, hey, Let's get close. Come on over sometime. Cook up some dogs, whatever, for the boys. Yeah, the boys can go in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be fun. Uh, I, uh, I agree with Chris. I agree with you, Chris. I also have a lot of affection for Patsy, but we'll stay away from spoilers, though I think you and I are probably smiling, thinking of some of the same scenes. Yep. But Patsy also does very good work. Uh, Dan Grimaldi does great work with his dramatic acting in this scene you can tell how painful it is that he lost his brother that in some point at some level he does want to move on with his life he decided against the revenge format and tony i agree also does some smart things it's icky for sure but the way that he speaks to patsy patsy's brother was killed by the way for talking too much yeah and in this scene the reason i uh chose this particular quote, let me hear you say it from Tony, is because this episode is about spying and trying to elicit information. You're trying to get people to talk. 
in yeah. certain circumstances. And The Sopranos, in many ways, I think, often has characters oscillating between omerta, like you need to shut the fuck up, and I need something from you. So Tony needs to hear him say it. And I did think he was clever. And also, in some ways, even slightly menacing. I do think Tony wanted Patsy to know that he cares, but I also think he wanted Patsy to know that his eyes are everywhere. But his eyes aren't quite everywhere. He doesn't know that Patsy already went in the pool. <laughs> so again, it has some humor and some irony to it while being uh, the real dramatic core of the episode as far as Tony and Patsy are concerned. It's the only scene where we get where we really dig in. I think both actors in the scene did sterling work. I can't say it better than Paul. Um, I appreciate, uh, I, as Paul said, the, the menace in the scene is there. Uh, I think Tony's just a great leader. I think uh, I think he's got it all as, as yeah. a boss. I really do. I think he's able to communicate. One, there is some compassion here, right? He, he does recognize the loss. He tries to redirect Patsy in a way that is productive, which mm -hmm. almost feels almost like something that could have been learned in therapy. And then there is kind of this dangling threat, right? I need to hear you say it, right? Why do I need to hear you say it? Because it's the only choice you have because you know what the other choice is. Yeah. Right? So that's that's all on the table. And um, listen, I'll say it again. It, it's not uh, big in this episode, but Tony's a really scary guy. You know, he, he rules in a number of different ways, but all of those men are afraid of Tony in some way. Yeah, uh, they don't show it often, but that's always on the table is that, well, Tony could have me killed or he is the street guy. He will do it himself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Tony will wrap his hands around your throat and choke the life out of you. Mm -hmm. You know, so there, there is always that. Yeah. So Patsy's grief is put behind him. The wire is placed in the basement. They have that little discussion again. Jordan, you said it well earlier about when they're talking about where to place this table four inches one way yeah, or the other. Good Lord. They don't give a shit. Tony doesn't give a shit. No one actually looks down here. The maid might notice it. Maybe <laughs> and I, even then I doubt it, but they place this wire. They're out of the sausage factory. And then we get them listening in the van. I got a job for you. could get messy. They're playing with us a little <laughs> bit, but he's just talking to Stasio about the thing. He has this idea to rig the water. He's kind of given Stasio an idea. Stasio's going to take care of it. And the conversation that my, I summarized this entire operation on the, by the FBI, the com, including the conversation they're getting on this wiretap. I wrote three B's benign, banal, boneheaded. Cause that's what this whole yeah. thing was. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's just unbelievable how stupid this all was in a, in a, in a, again, in an entertaining way, but they're talking about his fucking stool, his, he's ex, who's getting on the exercise bike. Yeah. Uh, a little, a little detail I liked. Tony mentions he's got a Russian taking care of his mother. Carmela's first question. Oh, where'd you find her agency? So, you know, yeah, Carmelo's on top. Yeah, and we, and we know who it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you need more roughage than you diet. You need to, maybe I'll try the other floss and into the music. So give your thoughts on this last sequence, the kind of button on the episode, the point of this episode, and final thoughts on Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood. Yeah, I'll just say that in total, it's an enjoyable episode. I think 
you know, in short, we could just say it is it is much ado about nothing. I mean, it is just the height of tedium. We kind of get the feeling, unless we are surprised later, that this whole big operation amounts to nothing, that the FBI will put in a maximum of effort and utilize their full resources to essentially hear Tony talking about his bowel movements. You know what I mean? Just, just it, It's just nothing. And I think this is not the first time and not the last time that David Chase will kind of point out that, you know, Tony's involvement in organized crime and organized crime in general is just this huge, shapeless mass. And the amount of resource and the kind of skill you need to kind of fight this sort of thing has a degree of futility to it. And within that futility rests much tedium and we get to really enjoy it in this episode that's very well said i couldn't do much better than that uh, one thing about the ending uh, you guys already noted a, a lot about the futility and the absurdity of it uh, i gotta give another shout out to a great music cue i think it's by the song by elvis costello high fidelity is really well placed it's a great outro track for the episode and this episode for me i think there is a much ado about nothing quality to it. There's also something I think to this episode being the least traditional of like almost any Sopranos episode. We're not even really hanging out with our favorite characters too much and how close it is to, in many ways, the much more traditional TV of the sixties and seventies, focusing on spies and law enforcement, but of course, expertly sending those things up because the characters that we're following are much less interesting and less likable than the Peter Gunn types. Lastly, I think one thing about this episode that I have to admit, as fun as it is, that gave me a little bit of a, a dark feeling is that because of the nature of where the characters are going, this person goes over here, AJ goes to school, Meadows off in New York, is that a lot of the main characters are not interacting really with each other. They're in their own worlds. So it also denotes a kind of alienation that I felt throughout a lot of the episode that made me feel a bit uneasy. But again, certainly is a, is another great tease. You want to see where this is going to go next. Amen, boys. And with that, it's Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. Alienation, banal, boneheaded, police work, tedium, but a lot of fun and laughs as well. And we get a nice little check-in with the family. That said, decent, decent premiere but definitely needs to be coupled with Pro Shilavushka. I think it works better yes. in a continued viewing rather than a week-to-week format. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I see why they did that, but still an enjoyable chapter of The Sopranos and uh, certainly a lot of fun. I want to thank you all for joining us. It's great to be back for season three. Thank you for being patient with us in our little uh, break we took, but we're glad to be back at it. And with that, I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we'll be back with Proshai Lavushka. Martin Luther King. <laughs>